The text for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain single, uh, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say... I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Every word of God is perfect. Let us people bless his holy name. It's a blessing to teach through scripture like we do here at Covenant of Grace, one verse at a time. Otherwise, we might not come to sections of scripture like this on a Christmas Eve morning. But as it is, these uh, scriptures, as practical and as maybe uh, acute as they are on our uh, marital lives and sexual lives, what it does is it exposes that this theme of First Corinthians that we're calling life under grace is that the grace really is for all of life. The gospel doesn't just come for your soul, doesn't just come for a future-oriented salvation or a past-oriented sense of uh, guilt or darkness, but a very present, very present sense for all of life, for our hands, for our feet, for our thinking, for our vocations and our stations in life. It comes to help us uh, in the pressures of life and difficulties. It comes to help us uh, to truly live a redeemed life. And so in this section of Scripture, we see that Paul is responding to a letter that was sent to him by the Corinthians. And it's a little bit like hearing a one-sided conversation. Since we don't have that letter, we have to reconstruct the questions that are being asked on our end. But it doesn't really seem too hard, um, given the context and the way that Paul answers. It seems to be that in light of the gospel... They're asking questions like this. Paul, should I get married? 
Or should I say stay single? You got to think about this. Uh, many of them were betrothed. Uh, marriages were arranged. And now they were potentially arranged to be married to someone who wasn't a Christian. What should they have done? Should they enter into that marriage knowing that this person is not a Christian? Should they stay single? Should uh, we divorce someone? Maybe they became a Christian and their husband was not a Christian. The question came to Paul, should we divorce them? Is that what faithful Christian living looked like? Should a husband put away an unconverted wife? What do we think about children? What do we think about children if they're in the home? Do we uh, honor the children by separating or staying married? Should we give our children away in marriages any longer? What to think? Well, there's two dynamics here that were a part of the Christian's, um, excuse me, the Corinthians' lives that I think we should hold in our mind as we approach this text. Two sort of dynamics. There are many others, but two that I think are particularly helpful to understanding this text. And one was a, a bit of a reminder from last week was the philosophy that the Greeks had and the Corinthian uh, congregation might have been holding regarding the body. And Paul used this phrase, sort of recapturing their um, belief system, and it was this. Look, the, the stomach is for the body. Excuse me, the stomach is for food, and the food is for the stomach. And so what they're trying to get at in that philosophy was, hey, the body is just a tool. And if it has an appetite, if it's hungry, you feed it. If it's got an itch, you scratch it. And so if it's got the sexual feeling, uh, you just satisfy that. And Paul says, no, your, your body uh, is, is more than just a stomach, right? It's more than just its appetite. And he give them a new phrase. Oh, look, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And they had all these questions surrounding their bodies um, and what to do with their time and hands and feet and appetites. And this is where we really get into the questions regarding marriage and what to do with this sort of sexual appetite and this sense of what Paul calls a burning. And also informative to that was another dynamic that was going on in their lives. We know that persecution had come to the Christians. This was a new sect. It was strange. Um, and people didn't like it. And we also know that Paul himself would later be martyred. So this was a very present pressure. And in verse 26 of this chapter, Paul mentions, hey, in light of present circumstances, in light of present tension, you might want to think differently about marriage and parenting and singleness. And You might want to pause. This is a difficult time. Let me let me read something to you. It's quite a long quote. I'm aware of that. But if you can hang tight, I think it will inform the rest of this series in the Corinthians. It will help us to get a grasp of maybe life as a Christian under this Roman rule in this Greek province for the Corinthians. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger. He says, It is my rule, sire, to refer to you in matters where I am uncertain. For who can better direct my hesitation or instruct my ignorance? I was never present at any trial of Christians before, and therefore I do not know what is the customary penalties or investigations, and what limits are to be observed. 
and I have hesitated a great deal on the question whether there should be any distinction regarding age or whether they're weak, they should have the tr same treatment as other more robust Christians, whether those who recant should not be pardoned, or whether a man who has ever been a Christian in the past should gain nothing by ceasing to be such, or whether the name itself, even if innocent of a crime, should be punished, or only the crimes attached to those of that name. Meanwhile, this is the course that I have adopted in the case of those who are brought before me as Christians. First, I ask them if they are Christians, and if they admit to it, I repeat the question a second and third time, threatening capital punishment. And if they persist, I sentence them to death. For I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their pertinency and inflexible obstinacy should certainly be punished. There were others who displayed a like madness and whom I reserved to be sent to Rome since they were Roman citizens. Thereupon, the usual result followed. The very fact of my dealing with the question led to a wider spread of the charge, and a great variety of cases were brought before me. An anonymous pamphlet was issued containing many names, all who denied that they were Christians, and I considered that they should be discharged because they called upon the gods at my dictation and did reverence with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought before uh, this purpose, together with the statutes of the deities, and especially because they chose to curse Christ, a thing which, it is said, Christians cannot be induced to do. Others named by the informer first said that they were Christians, and then they denied it, declaring that they had been, but were so no longer, and some having recanted three years or more before, and one or two as long as twenty years ago. They all worshipped your image and the statutes of the gods that cursed and cursed Christ. But they declared that the sum of their guilt and error had amounted to only this, that on an appointed day they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak, and to recite a hymn antiphonally to Christ as to God, and to bind themselves by an oath, not for the commission of any crime, but to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breach of faith, and not to deny a deposit when it was claimed. After the conclusion of this ceremony, it was their custom to depart and meet again to take food, but it was ordinary and harmless food, and they had ceased this practice after my edict in which, in accordance with your orders, I had forbidden secret societies. I thought it the more necessary, therefore, to find out what truth there was in this by applying torture to two maidservants who were called deaconesses. But I found nothing but a depraved and extravagant superstition and I therefore postponed my examination and had recourse for your consultation. The matter seemed to me to justify my consulting you, especially on account of the number of those in peril. For those persons of all ages and classes and of both sexes are being put in peril by accusation, and this will go on. The contagion of this superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. Yet it seems capable of being checked and set right, there's no shadow of doubt that the temples, which have been almost deserted, are beginning to be frequented once more, that the sacred rites, which have been long neglected, are being renewed, and that the sacrificial victims are for sale everywhere, whereas till recently a buyer was rarely to be found. From this it is easy to imagine what a host of men could be set right were they given the chance to recant. 
So these questions that the Corinthians sent to Paul are extremely valid. How should we then live in a culture and a time such as this? For us, these texts serve as a wonderful guide into what it is to think, to use our minds as a Christian. How do we see the world in light of our redemption? And you got to love that, that in that um, account from Pliny, part of, of the problem there was that the temple deities were not being worshipped. You can kind of see this uh, as Paul's uh, situation in Acts 18. When Paul came to preach the gospel, the statutes to Diana of the Ephesians were no longer being bought. People were going out of business. Pagan businesses were going empty. People of all classes wouldn't recant. They were just meeting to sing and fellowship and treat people right and honor their marriages, no longer visiting the temple prostitutes. And so pressure, persecution had come upon them. For our text this morning, as those uh, two dynamics shine light on this text, here's the the bit of the structure, the outline of, of what we want to highlight and see from this text. Number one would be the effects on marriages. What is the gospel's effect on marriages? Number two is a case for marriage and a case for separation. And number three, marriage to unbelievers. Number one, effects on marriages. Let's refresh from the text. Now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And if you can kind of notice in your text, this should be most of the time in quotation marks. Now that wouldn't have been the case in the original Greek, um, but from context it looks as if Paul is uh, recapturing a philosophy or a phrase that was written to him. Right? It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, that is the a bit of the mindset that was going through these Christians' heads. And it sometimes is identified as a bit of a Gnostic belief. And it's taking that Greek view that the body is weak and the body is fleshly and that the things of the Spirit are true and good and therefore the things of the flesh are to be avoided and abstained from. All right, so it's a more Gnostic view of the body. So Paul has to deal with them on that. Apparently, people were writing and said, it is good for a man, it's a good thing, not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they carried this over even until their marriages. And so you can see the problem here. They're beginning to burn with lust, trying to be a Christian, trying to be holy. What does it mean? They're getting themselves into sexual tension and kind of not especially young men thinking about getting married. So Paul begins to advise. Verse 2, But because of the temptation into sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the husband, uh, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Paul explicitly says, look, because of the flesh, because of temptation, marriage is the right place for sexual fulfillment. Not the local temple prostitutes, right? Not to go down and indulge, not to see the body as just this uh, thing that needs to be fed and so you can do whatever you want with it because true holiness is in the spirit. No. The 
body is meant for the Lord. And so a way to honor God with your body, if there's sexual tension, is to not burn with lust and try to remain celibate, but to enter in joyfully and confidently, wonderfully, into marriage. It is the right place. Instead, husbands um, are, and wives are to give to one another. She's not a concubine. Okay, This is a, what begins to separate Christianity from the culture. She is not just a sexual slave. The man is also not to go down and take sexual slaves. But they are to reciprocate in service to one another, giving authority over their bodies to their spouses. The husband giving to the wife and the wife to the husband. And that also means that the uh, husband does not own the wife. But it says in sort of an equal footing that the wife also has authority over her husband. They together, in effect, say, I am here for you. As we seek to honor God together, we are here for each other. Marriage, with its hard boundaries of fidelity and honor and service and mutual joy and delight, displays a distinctly gospel chord. In society, a marriage that defines itself by fidelity and sexual purity and joy of reciprocity, of outdoing one another in honor and in sexual giving, strikes a distinctly gospel chord. They are in covenant. Uh, later, Paul in Ephesians 5 will, will say, the mystery of the gospel is displayed in marriages. Marriages look most clearly of all other metaphors and images like the gospel. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I almost titled this sermon, Don't Touch Me, I'm Praying, but I didn't, and it was a missed opportunity. Um, the truth is, there may be times where sexual relationship needs to take a pause. But it must be done by mutual agreement and for a limited time. So not just one party going rogue, one party saying, I, I need to be uh, away from you for any reason. It must be a, a considerate effort to the spouse, right? The reality is our bodies have appetites, and instead of being tempted to sin, marriage channels those passions into fruitful and good expressions of sex and love and trust and security and enjoyment and children. So when you remove that frequency and that giving and service to your spouse, you not only um, sort of leave them exposed to sexual temptation, but you're breaking trust and security. And so Paul says, look, you've got to come together in mutual consideration before taking a pause. And if you take a pause, don't think that it's spiritual. You need to take a long pause. It needs to be short. Because the principle is this. Fighting sin is essential for the Christian. And the marriage bed is a marvelous help with that. The phrase, do not deprive, 
is sometimes rendered, rendered do not defraud. So that is, if you withhold from your spouse, you're, you're robbing them. So think about this in another instance of robbing. Think about it going down to the local gas station and robbing them of their, of their product. We shouldn't do that then, um, and we shouldn't do that in our marriages. And you can't go down and rob the convenience store because you're annoyed at them or frustrated or, or tired. And so the same can't be said of our marriage, where you don't defraud someone just because you're annoyed with them. It's not an excuse to rob our neighbor, and it's not an excuse to rob our spouse. The dynamic here is service, self-sacrifice. A lesson that Paul taught was centered at the cross, that the Corinthians often were getting backwards, seeking what would best serve them. Instead of what Paul's reminder was, is that their posture should be stewards, should be servants. It's better to give and to receive. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now Paul almost certainly was married at, at some point. It seems to be that um, the, the text that we have on the tradition of being a rabbi, that one almost certainly had to be married. So he may have been a widower, or they may have been separated because of his conversion. We, we simply don't know. But the thing we do need to look at is that Paul says, this is my gift. It's not a command, right? It's not a command. But I do wish that you were as I am. But each has his own gift. So sometimes people misunderstand this to say that singleness is a gift and marriage is a gift. Now, I want to be clear here, because sometimes being single doesn't really feel like a gift. It can feel very, very difficult. But notice Paul here isn't just saying that singleness itself is the gift, but the gift is contentment. It says it's not a command, but I do wish that you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift, right? You may not have the gift of being content and being single. And you might be pursuing marriage like most people do. But Paul's gift explicitly was a contentment in his singleness. Remember the persecutions, right? It might be good for, especially in their time, to remain single. We'll see that in just a few weeks more in the latter verses of this chapter. After all, Paul himself would later be martyred. 1 Corinthians 7.26, a reminder. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good that a person remain as he is. Let me just remind you one more time. This is from the account of Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, which, by the way, is a high recommendation for a text like this. She says that some of the early martyrs were women who rejected suitors or arranged marriages in favor of remaining single, an option that was not tolerated by the surrounding culture. One account was Agatha of Syria. She refused several offers of marriage, especially from Roman, a Roman magistrate named Quintilian, who tried to coerce her by denouncing her as a Christian. And this was during the persecution of Decius in AD 250. And when she did not change her mind, she was tortured and eventually died in prison. Okay, just a reminder, 
these considerations were no small thing. How to be faithful where you are. Number two, this text informs us on a case for marriage and a case for separation. Here's the text. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if you cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, uh, it, it, it's better to marry an unbeliever. Uh, excuse me, a believer first. First Corinthians seven thirty nine informs us of that. So now the Christian community is commanded not to enter into marriages with unbelievers, as they might have been slated to do, but they should enter into marriages and covenants with believers. But think about this. Paul says, in light of persecution, it might be wise to be single. It is much harder to face um, crucifixion with children and a wife than it is to face it alone. But he says this, it's better to face persecution in holiness while married rather than face persecution tied in the knots of sin and sexual tension. Think about the importance of sin in that line of thinking. It is better to face persecution while walking in holiness than to face persecution tied in the knots of sin. It is how serious the Bible is about sin and walking in holiness. Verse 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband shouldn't divorce his wife. So when Paul here says, not I, but the Lord, he's referring to Jesus' teachings and reiterating what it was that Jesus taught. So he's not saying, as some think, I'm removing myself from Scripture and just giving my opinion. You can take or leave this part. He's not saying this is my opinion. He's saying, the Lord says this, not me. And he's quoting the Lord in his views of marriage and separation. That is, if you marry, you should not separate. There were grounds for separation in the case of infidelity, but if someone merely wants to leave, then they should remain unmarried, or the other option is to reconcile, reconcile that marriage. Jesus here in Matthew 19 was speaking to a Jewish audience. The married couples would have been covenant children of God. And they appealed to the law of Moses referring to marriage and divorce. But Paul is entering into a new situation. Now you have a Gentile audience with a new dynamic. And so what happens when pagans become believers? Now what? Do they divorce their unbelieving spouses? Now you have people who are sort of in and out of the covenant. It, it seems that there is an imbalance here. And so Paul moves on to expound on the teaching of Jesus regarding marriage. Let's look at verses 12 through 16 in our third point, marriage to unbelievers. To the rest I say, I am not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul here says, I, not the Lord. Again, not mentioning his opinion, but rather his authority as an apostle. He's building upon Jesus' teaching into a Gentile audience, bringing gospel wisdom to bear on their circumstances. If you become a Christian and your spouse does not, or isn't yet, but if they're willing to stay with you, well, then the answer is do not seek divorce. Divorce, as many of us know firsthand, is devastating even though sometimes it's necessary. It goes with the principle that we saw last week about sexual immorality, is that we cannot simply engage in things with our hands and feet and sexuality lightly, as the world often tells us we can, entering into marriage lightly, entering into a bedroom with someone lightly, entering into relationships lightly, especially with the body especially under the covenant of marriage, especially in the flesh, in sexual union, there are bigger realities at play that press upon us, demanding our attention. And that is, our bodies and our marriages are spiritual realities. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and pictures of the gospel in the world. The question now changes to what about the children? The unbelieving wife or husband and the kids are made holy by the presence of a believer. And holy here is not uh, identifying them as saved, but holy in the true sense of the word as set apart. They are set apart. They are given grace. They are given a blessing by the presence of that believer. And so we, we believe that baptism is a sign to the children of that visible setting apart. I find it interesting here that instead of the believer being defiled by the the presence of unbelievers, the logic here, listen to this, the logic here is that the leavening influence is from the believer to the unbeliever. That the unclean can become clean because of the presence of the gospel. To be honest, one of the ways that that would very evidently happen would be in the way Paul is calling for a spouse to respond to the needs of their other spouse. Think about that. If a wife were to become a Christian and the husband was not, and all of a sudden she takes up Paul's commands to honor her husband, to serve him in their bed and with honor and dignity, and she's giving her life to the Lord, and she is humbling herself and walking in integrity, what a shocking reality that would be to your home dynamic. What it often is, where the gospel is most plainly seen, is in our daily living, and in front of our children, and in front of our spouses, would have been an incredibly powerful thing. However, Paul does say this, if the unbelieving spouse wishes to leave, Well, you should let them go. You're called to peace. And refusing to let the unbelieving spouse go would would cause all sorts of turmoil in their soul and your family and your community. And Christians are called to peace, not this sort of 
tension, not the sort of divorce court painful uh, thing that could have begun to happen. We're reminded in Matthew 19, it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters, or father, mother, children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And the gospel comes with our entire life's devotion. And that means that some things have to be let go. And in this case, it might have been extremely painful to see a spouse go. And that might have been uh, seeing your security go and, and potentially even access to your children go. But if they wished to part from you and you wouldn't let them go, well, it was wrong. It does say here, how do you know whether you were going to convert them? Well, the truth is you don't. The truth is that you don't. The logic here is also that if they leave you, well, you're free to remarry. This is a little bit different from the teaching we saw earlier. It wasn't because of infidelity. It wasn't because you chose to leave. But if they chose to leave you, well, now you're free. You're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. What are we to see from these texts today? Well, I think I think a couple things. One is the, the power of the gospel comes to every situation, whether you're single, widowed, divorced, married, married and your marriage is difficult, married to an unbeliever, the gospel reorients us to what is ultimate. We're no longer trapped by living enslaved to physical lusts, and we're no longer bound to mere survival. We don't have to just seek marriages for social standing and wealth acquisition, nor do we seek illicit relationships to fulfill just the flesh, right? The body is meant for, for sexual immorality. It's not it. Our marriages or our contented singleness, contented singleness is a testimony to Christ and for Christ. Our lives, right, whether single or married, are to be recaptured and reoriented as a testimony to Christ. Uh, you can almost imagine the Corinthians, you know, kind of saying, hey, gee, Alexander, where you been? We haven't seen you down at the, the temple anymore purchasing prostitutes. What what gives? Right? Well, he says, well, <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah, I was had that sexual tension and you know, I became a Christian. And I've given my life over to Christ. And uh, I, I met a woman and we got married and, she is mine and, and I am hers. And I, I give to her. I serve her. I want to honor her. And part of the picturing the gospel, the way that God has loved me is I, I lay my life down for her. Uh, it, it completely came with self-sacrifice and love amidst a culture of radical self-service. Paul elsewhere describes marriage relationship as the mystery of the gospel, right? And so we must remember that Paul had kind of criticized and rebuked the Corinthians, saying that the gospel was to come with power. The gospel was to come with power. Power to change culture. Power to change marriages. Powers to change what we will see uh, in the future, discrimination or fraud or eating habits or etc. The gospel changes things. And so when we look at the culture around us, what we have sometimes in our mind, is that we want to present an apologetic for the gospel. And so we engage in logical argumentation, which is right and good. 
But one of the true fundamental things that we must see is that the apologetic, the defense for the faith, is simply the redemption of our hands and our feet, is that we begin to live differently, that we become a living sacrifice. How are we to present ourselves? The Bible says, uh, Paul elsewhere says, well, we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That is that theology comes out of our fingertips, comes out of our fingers and our hands and our mouth. That is what we do, not just what we want to do or what we believe, but it is what we actually do.